This is Competition Law with Professor Karan Beaton-Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer or competitor. In this episode, Karan speaks with Associate Professor John Newman from the University of Miami about whether competition law has been paying too little attention to attention. I don't think they want our data for its own sake. I think in large part, a company like Facebook wants our data just as an input into creating a more valuable finished product. And the finished product is our eyeballs, our attention. That's what they really sell to advertisers, not so much our data itself. And we're missing the boat if we focus solely on data and not on attention. Here's Karan Beaton-Wells. The futurist Gerd Lennard counsels us, the future is already here. We just need to pay more attention. But in the present future, are we in fact paying too much attention? Is the price for the many supposedly free services that appear to make our lives so much easier nowadays, not just our personal data, but our precious attention? And are competition authorities paying enough attention? to attentional harms. These are the questions addressed by my guest in today's episode, Associate Professor John Newman, while on a visit to Melbourne to present his paper on the topic at a Digital Citizens Conference. And I couldn't resist asking him about why he still has one of those flip phones. Yep, that's right, a phone you can only make phone calls on. Remember those? Well, I think if you want to use the derogatory term dumb phone, that's pretty accurate at this point. But yeah, it was a conscious choice that kind of ties in with the project that I'm here to talk about, and that is protecting our attention. I think smartphones, if you look around at a restaurant or bar, are consuming an awful lot of people's attention. Yeah, guilty. (laughs) So trying to protect myself in a way. So you said you're here to talk about your attention project. We're holding a conference on digital citizens at the Melbourne Law School this week and delighted to have had you make a contribution. You delivered a really thought-provoking paper the central thesis of which is that we have been paying too little attention to attention in our economy and digital markets specifically. What got you onto this topic in the first place and fired you up about it? Well, in part, this is a very personal topic to me. I've looked around at friends and family who seem to be consumed with digital technology. They're on smartphones constantly. So in part, it is a very personal topic. I feel like it's something that is occurring in the marketplace, but is also something that affects us all on a very deep, very fundamentally personal level. My general take is that we have been paying too little attention to this very, very important and very personal asset, our attention. And as you say in the paper, our attention is not just a precious resource, it's a scarce resource. What is it that makes it so scarce nowadays? Well, Herbert Simon, Nobel laureate, said that information consumes attention. I think that gets at the right nature of why attention is so scarce now. There's more information in part. A lot of different innovations have contributed to an ever-increasing flood of information just flowing around our society. If you think back to 
200, 300 years ago, the big problem was that there wasn't enough information, right? If you're sitting out in your cabin without any electricity, you're hungry for information. You want books, and one book could be a precious resource. And that was true for pretty much all of human development up until about 20 years ago, I think. All of a sudden, that relationship between abundant information and scarce attention that we're seeing now has emerged. So back in the day, it was abundant attention and scarce information. Within the last 20 years or so, we've seen that invert to abundant information, scarce attention. And your particular interest is in attention exchanges or trade in attention. You've explored the extent to which different legal doctrines seek to govern or regulate structure in some way, that trade or exchange. It seems to me the most obvious place to start when we're talking about the law and attention is privacy law. Privacy law must have something to say on this subject, surely. I think privacy lawyers and scholars are one of the groups that has paid relatively more attention to attention, so they're not squarely in the we, in the we haven't paid enough attention. And privacy law has paid attention in part because that kind of is its reason for existence. The thing that privacy law cares about is attention. Now, it's not so much an inward focus. It's not where is my attention being directed. It's more who out there can direct attention to my person, my information. Unwanted attention. Right. So it's kind of the inverse of what I'm thinking about, and that is how is my attention being allocated? Privacy law thinks about how are other people able to direct their attention at me? So I think it is a discipline that's thought about attention, but in a different way from how I'm trying to think about it. What about contract law? Has that got something to say on the subject? Can you contract for your attention? Contract law is a really interesting discipline when you start thinking about attention and attention exchange in particular. There are some interesting cases where judges adjudicating contract law disputes have analyzed attention exchange, in particular in the context of broadcast radio. And they've said, yeah, I think that when someone listens to, say, a broadcast radio station, there is an exchange going on there. It is marketplace activity. The radio station gives up something of value, the content, and the person, the listener, gives up something of value, their attention. So in a sort of rudimentary way, a lot of these judges aren't trained economists or trained psychologists. I think that contract law, contract judges, have recognized something important here, and that is that we are out there in the world, exchanging our attention just about every day. But you also say there's some internal inconsistency in the contract jurisprudence on the subject because judges have also fastened on the fact that, in the context of radio, to which you refer, the service is free. Yes, this is what I've called in an earlier piece, the myth of free. And it is a really powerful narrative that surrounds particularly internet-delivered products. I think the power of this myth has been eroded recently, but for a long time, there was a very, very powerful narrative. And a lot of it was emerging out of Silicon Valley and not just Google and Facebook who have a very self-interested reason for pushing this myth, but it was really emerging from the Silicon Valley commentary community. Folks like Chris Anderson, who was editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine for a while, published a book called Free saying, hey, look at all this great free stuff that Google, Facebook, etc. are giving away. And I think that's part of the reason that you see judges in breach of contract disputes, getting back to your question, 
recognizing that there's an exchange going on, but then also falling into the trap of saying, yeah, but YouTube is kind of like a charity. They're also giving away something for free. You'll be aware, of course, that it's now widely recognized and accepted that these services are not free and the price that most people identify in that context is personal data, if not the subject of that personal data, the user, him or herself. But you say we should be thinking about the price as our attention because there is a derived relationship between data and attention. Can you unpack that for us? I can try. There's a couple of different things going on there. One is at a baseline. We need to recognize that people using, say, Facebook aren't just paying with their data. There is a view out there. I think it's kind of a naive view that says we just pay with our data and that's what these companies really want. I don't think that's right. I don't think they want our data for its own sake. I think in large part, a company like Facebook wants our data just as an input into creating a more valuable finished product. And the finished product is our eyeballs, our attention. That's what they really sell to advertisers, not so much our data itself. So that's why I say the demand for data is just derived from the demand for attention. And we're missing the boat if we focus solely on data and not on attention. Well, so let's turn to antitrust law. You've pointed out in your presentation yesterday that when you did a study of the number of antitrust conferences focusing on data versus those focusing on attention. It was all one way, and that was in favor of data. And you've argued that perhaps antitrust is missing the wood for the trees here. Why is it that we need to be thinking about competition and attention as distinct from data and competition? So the short answer is that Attention markets are real markets, and there can be real harms that occur in these markets along these lines of competition. So if we don't look at all at this very important aspect of modern markets, we're very likely to, and I would argue we actually have allowed massive consumer welfare harms to go unchecked. And this is a really widespread problem. I think the ACCC, with its preliminary report on digital platforms, has perhaps gone the farthest in the right direction of recognizing the importance of attention. They mentioned that attention and information are both very important aspects of exchange in modern digital markets. But even there, this is probably the best report that's been done by any regulator in the world. Even there, if you go through the preliminary report, mentions information or data over 300 times, they mention attention 13 times. And I said that there can be really massive harms that go unchecked when you focus too much on data. One example of that is back in the US when DOJ analyzed a series of broadcast radio mergers in the late 1990s and early 2000s. They looked exclusively for harm to advertisers since that's where the money was. They did not look at all for harm to listeners in the form of higher attention costs. And it turns out some economists have done some subsequent work that suggested, yeah, once these markets got more concentrated, the radio stations began playing more ads which I view as higher attention costs to the listeners. There's a harm there that's gone unchecked by antitrust. Well, let's understand better what you say exactly is the harm because clearly there's no monetary price. There may be a quality issue here if we're thinking about the type of content that is attracting and holding our attention. But I think you go beyond that in your conceptualization of the relevant cost what are attentional costs if there is such a thing? We could frame this, and people have tried to frame this as just an aspect of quality. What that misses is 
the asset that's being exchanged. If all we look at is quality of some product that's being delivered to listeners, then the listeners haven't yet exchanged anything for that product. And we're right back to viewing this as just a free charitable activity. So I think focusing solely on quality, again, kind of misses the boat here or misses the most important part of competition. So that's, I think, the wrong way to go. So what's the right way to go? How can we put our finger on this harm that's occurring? The easiest metric, I suppose, is time. What's more valuable than our time, really? I think very little. A lot of people would say time is my most valuable resource. And if I'm being forced to give up more of my time listening to the ad that I don't want to listen to and not listening to the thing I really want to listen to, that's a problem. I think that's a very valuable asset that's being squandered. But you also say in the paper that there's a problem here or a challenge for antitrust doctrine in grappling with attention dimensions of markets because you say existing doctrine correlates consumer welfare with choice and in attention markets that correlation is faulty at best. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, faulty at best. So even the framing of consumer choice in a lot of these modern digital markets, I think is a bad one. To say that people choose to use Facebook is a little bit of a stretch when Facebook's really the only possible general social network that has 2 billion people on it. So maybe even the framing of consumer choice in a lot of these markets is misleading. But faulty at best, the idea that increasing the number of choices is always good for consumers is something that I think pretty much any neoclassical economist would buy into. I think a lot of antitrust regulators would buy into. I think it's wrong, though. I think there's some interesting psychological research that suggests the more choices confront someone, the worse their ultimate decision ends up being for them. They end up making a suboptimal decision. And we've all experienced that when we walk into a restaurant and the menu has too many choices. That's overwhelming, right? So I think we need to divorce welfare and choice. Can I just tackle you on that premise for a moment? That is the premise that, as you said, any neoclassical economist would accept that choice is a sine qua non of consumer welfare or antitrust. Isn't it the case that we understand what preferences consumers have by what they actually do in the marketplace. And their revealed preferences tell us that consumers don't always want more choice. They make trade-offs. So they may be prepared to sacrifice choice in order to have lower price or higher quality, whatever it might be. And firms too make trade-offs between whether they're going to innovate and offer more choice or whether they're going to serve a different market with a different offering. Is it correct to say that consumer welfare equals more choice? Because that would be a very structuralist paradigm for antitrust doctrine, which has you know, been left behind uh, in some quarters many years ago. Well, there's the underlying question of what we even mean by choice. And I think that it probably means different things to different people. Maybe choice just means more players in the marketplace. Maybe it means the potential of more players in the marketplace is sort of a potential competition idea. I would say that revealed preferences are what we should focus on. There again, I think the framing or the rhetoric really can be a little misleading. Is it really a preference of a consumer 
who has clicked I agree on a thousand page user agreement when they signed up to use Facebook? Is it really their preference that Facebook go out and share their personal data with hundreds of different companies, many of which want to manipulate that person's subsequent decisions? I find it hard just stepping back from the economic framework to call that a real preference. So I'd push back on the idea of even equating revealed preferences with welfare. I think we need to get away from a sort of whatever people do, that's what's best for them way of doing antitrust. No, I agree. And of course, the revealed preferences theory does very little to help us when consumers are conflicted as to their preferences. You have talked about choice overload as being a real cost, a pernicious effect of the attention economy. What about some of the societal impacts that you also identify in connection with the fact that, you know, we have so much of our attention consumed in often unproductive ways nowadays? So this, I think, is maybe the most valuable, maybe the most controversial part of this project. I'm trying to argue that aside from the effects of overconsumption of attention on individuals themselves, there really are pernicious effects, at least potentially, and I think most likely, on society as a whole. So there's some really interesting psychological research around what happens to people when their attention or their cognition gets either overloaded or depleted. And it turns out, maybe unsurprisingly, we start to be not the best versions of ourselves. We start to exhibit more pronounced racial biases, uh, gender biases. So if we step back and think about what might happen to the world, not just individual consumers, in a state of attention consumption gone amok, I think there's some real problems here. If I'm overloaded or depleted, I then go out in the world and behave in a more racist or sexist way. I've now affected or hurt society at large. And that's a real problem. So as you say, we all become dysfunctional and not the best versions of ourselves. That certainly is an interesting hypothesis, one worth exploring. Your concern is primarily with targeted advertising in digital markets, given that the ad-driven business model underpins many of the dominant firms in this area. John, aren't ads useful for us, though? Don't they reduce information and transaction costs and just make it easier to decide where, when, and how we want to get what we think we need or want? They can. And I'm not quite as much of a skeptic of advertising as some. I think if you want to see something on the further left end of the spectrum, Ramsey Woodcock has a really nice paper about advertising in an age where all information is really available online. And his conclusion is that basically all advertising is a form of harmful monopolization at this point. I'm not sure I'm quite ready to go that far. I think some advertisements do still carry some informative value. But I do think he's onto something. In an age where pretty much all information I could really want is available online, I think advertisements play less of an informative role than they used to. And if we want to really diagnose what's going on in an advertisement, whether it's trying to persuade us on the one hand or just inform us on the other, I think we can just look at the content of some of these advertisements. So I, during my talk yesterday, put a slide up with an advertisement for a cheeseburger featuring a beautiful supermodel, Heidi Klum, eating the cheeseburger. That's really not designed to inform me of anything that I need to know. I think it's really designed to persuade me. So if your thesis is that at least at the individual level, but potentially with societal effects, the cost here is choice overload and what that does to our 
functioning and our behavior. Doesn't that pose a problem for competition law, given that the more competition there is for our attention, the more overloaded and depleted we're going to become? I think competition is probably an incomplete response at best. I think it is a partial response, but I think it's an incomplete one. So I don't think it's true that monopoly would be preferable to competition in these markets, although you could see an argument along those lines. Competition actually seems to kind of work in attention markets. So if we think back to the broadcast radio example I brought up earlier, the empirical work that followed DOJ's clearance of all these mergers suggested that the more concentrated a market became, the higher the attention costs or the cognitive drain is put on consumers. So you could reverse that and say, well, the more competition in a market, the lower the advertising, the lower the attention costs. And in that case, competition would have done something good. I think competition probably works better in something like broadcast radio. It's a fairly homogenous product and advertising load becomes one of the most salient aspects of differentiation from the listener's point of view. It probably works less well in a more differentiated product market like social networking, where advertising load is one aspect that's salient to consumers, but just one of many. But speaking about a market, how do we define the boundaries of a so-called attention market, given there's so much vying for attention? I mean, I might be searching Google while I'm trying to send an email, while I'm trying to help my son with his homework, trying to catch the evening news, getting something on the stove for dinner. I mean, being a woman, being a working mother, I know how to multitask. I know how to put my attention in multiple places at once. But how do we come up with a tractable market definition given so much vying for our attention? So the question of market definition is a really contested one right now. So the answer depends on whom you're asking. If you're asking Facebook or Google, it's a massive market that includes anything from a live theater performance to a football game to their product, social networking or general search. So they would say all these firms are out here competing for our attention, so they must all be in the same market. I think that's probably the wrong way to think about it, though. We could say the very same thing about money. Every firm is out here competing for money, so they must all be in one big market for money. And when I say it that way, it just seems kind of laughable and wrong. Maybe a nicer analogy is to labor markets. That's another market where you situate the natural person up at the top of the production chain. People produce labor, people produce attention, so they're kind of similar in that way. We wouldn't talk about one giant market for labor. Maybe we used to think of it that way, but it turns out economists are saying now that was wrong. Labor markets are narrower than just one giant market, and I think attention markets are too. So if we have to go beyond antitrust, as you've indicated, where do we go with protecting our attention is there some regulatory measure you would favor? I think it's going to take a suite of responses. Probably there's no one silver bullet here. One thing we might think about is the inverse of a price cap, a kind of quantity cap on the amount of attention that we can be required to expend in order to obtain things we really want, like access to a social network. Like there used to be restrictions on ads on free-to-air TV, that kind of thing? Exactly. We might limit the amount of space on a given web page that can be devoted to advertisements or the number of pop-up ads. We might put limits on the ability of a multi-platform company like Facebook to target ads to users across different platforms. We've all seen the ad that follows you from Facebook to Instagram across the web. 
So we might try to limit attention expenditures in that way. The nicest analogy there, I think, is to the old maximum hour workweek requirements that said you can labor, of course, but you can't be required to expend too much labor in order to get the thing you want. I would say that's kind of like attention. We can exchange some of our attention to ads, but maybe we should limit the amount that can be extracted from us. Alternatively, we might impose a sort of Pigouvian tax on attention consumption, so advertising activities, as a way to offset the negative externalities that we talked about earlier. But if you raise the costs for businesses that rely on advertising services, aren't you going to raise the prices, at least the monetary prices for consumers? Possibly. Uh, I would somewhat counterintuitively... But you may say that's not a problem. I would counterintuitively <laughs> say <laughs> that might not be a problem. Yeah. I'm actually pretty opposed to free products in general. I think there's been an explosion of, air quotes, free products in the modern economy. And there's some pretty interesting behavioral economics research that suggests there's something called the zero price effect. That is, we overconsume when we're confronted with a free product. And there's some neurological research that suggests we do that because the little pain center in our brain that usually triggers when we have to give away some money isn't triggered when we are just exchanging attention to Do we actually get a dopamine response? <laughs> we do, right? <laughs> so there's no negative response. And Facebook spends a lot of time thinking about how to trigger little dopamine responses. So I actually see a massive market failure here in the form of overconsumption of supposedly free products like Google, like Facebook. So I wouldn't be too opposed to higher prices, again, counterintuitively. Do we really want the state telling us where and how and when we should spend our attention? Can I counter with a question? <laughs> Do we really want Facebook telling us where and how we can spend our attention? Uh, I'm not sure I want either one. Touche, touche. Why to not choose. give us a property right in our attention? I mean, there's debates about us getting paid for our data. Why should we not be paid for our attention? I think there should be a debate around property rights and attention, if only because it seems like attention actually is being bought and sold and traded like property already. So we in the legal community maybe need to catch up a little bit here if we do care about describing the real world and understanding the real world. I am a little hesitant, though, to extend the idea of rights too far. I think in the U.S. particularly, to some extent more globally, We've seen rights discourse or rights talk devolve into just a shouting match between two different sides, both of whom claim a right in something. And I could see something like that happening with attention too, where we, the consumers, are yelling about our rights, Facebook is yelling about its rights, and it just turns into this shouting match that isn't productive. You just want attention. You don't want my heart. Maybe you just hate the thought of me with well, I hope you were paying attention. If you were, I'm sure you'll agree that the attention merchants, as Tim Wu famously called them, pose new and novel challenges for antitrust, and ones we do need to pay attention to for the sake of our sanity, if not our humanity. Next, on Competition Law... We're joined by Professor Tommaso Valletti from Imperial College London, sharing his insider insights on life as chief economist at DigiComp at the European Commission. Until then, you can find links to John's writing in the show notes and always other episodes, resources, links, etc. at competitionlaw.com. 
The show was produced by writtenandrecorded.com and I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. See you next time.